Morning. So, um, as I said last evening, my intention in, in these talks is to provide some uh, deeper background to Edwin Judge's talks in 2014. Um, from this point onwards, therefore, I'm going to be following Edwin's order, uh, just for ease of relating those two to each other. And so, over the next uh, two weekends, we're going to be thinking, first of all, about the, the business of creation and cosmos, and then secondly, about the issue of the nature of society, and thirdly, about the nature of the human person. So, that was his order, and I'm going to be following uh, that. And, and throughout the whole uh, exercise, what I'm aiming to try to do is to sharpen up our sense of what it means to be on the road to Jerusalem. Um, and in large measure, I'm going to be sharpening that up, I hope, by showing you sections of other roads that are possible through life, as it were, by way of comparison and contrast. Because I think it's always helpful to get a fresh perspective on something if you step back and look at it in relation to other, other things. So that, that's, the, that's the idea. Uh, now, I realize that some of you may not have heard Edwin's talks, and so I'm also from time to time going to be summarizing what he said very quickly, which won't do any of you who heard the talks any harm, uh, but it might help those who didn't just get a bit of orientation. Um, so that, that's what I want to begin with doing this morning. Um, I want to begin by uh, talking about what Edwin said about what he called the platonic mirage. Um, the idea, the, the Athens idea, the Greek idea, that the only truth that exists lies in the perfect form or idea of something, and that particular things are not the truth of anything. That's a direct quote from, from Edwin. Particular things, the things that make up our world actually, the things which are evident to our senses, in the, in the Greek view, in the Platonic view, these are only partial representations of realities that lie beyond sense perception. The beautiful, the rational, the perfect, the static, the unchanging cosmos lies beyond our sensual grasp, and the truth of it is only accessible to the mind. That's the crucial thing about Plato. And to discover things, then, about this truth, with a capital T, uh, we have to go about the business of discovering truth by way of analogy, because there is no direct way of doing it through our senses. We have to proceed rationally by analogy, and this puts definition and deduction as paths to knowledge right up at the top of the tree, okay? And we, we have to work a bit at this nowadays to get a hold of this, because it's not our way of doing stuff, right? Our way of doing stuff typically in the modern world is, is empirical, it's using the senses, and, and we tend, in, in fact, to be skeptical in our culture about things that the senses cannot grasp. So it's exactly the opposite way around. So we have to do a bit of work here, imaginatively, to get back into the, the mindset. So, uh, as Edwin pointed out, one of the consequences of this is that modern science was never going to arise in Athens. Just impossible, right? It could not happen, and it did not happen, because although the Greeks made limited use of empirical knowledge in some areas of life, with regard to history, for example, uh, empirical method would have been important, but on the whole, the Greeks rejected the empirical method when it came to knowledge of the natural world. And Edwin noted the example of the philosopher Galen, who is rather famous for early medical work, and he said that even Galen, in an area where we would take for granted that empiricism was the way to go, right, with, with medical inquiry, that Galen flirted with the empirical method 
but ultimately rejected it because it was not logical. Right? So that was an example that Edwin used. For the ancient Greeks, sense experience supplied the illustration, but not the evidence of the conclusions of science. Michael Foster, in a very important essay from 1934, a long time ago, not well known now, but at the time this essay appeared in the journal Mind, which is a pretty serious journal, um, and he wrote a, a very important essay on the Christian doctrine of creation and the rise of modern natural science. And uh, very much in line with what Edwin was saying, uh, he said uh, this, that sense experience back in that ancient Greek environment helped the philosopher to grasp by an active intuitive reason an understanding of something that was not itself sensible, which in this context means accessible to the senses at all. And he goes on to say that Plato and Aristotle differed on this point only in estimating differently the importance to be assigned to what is sensible as illustration. Okay, so that's the basic, that's the basic thrust of Edwin's comments. And the consequence of this is that what nature must be like as conceived rationally and then by deduction from rational principles using analogy, that's what the main thing is and what remains is the observation of examples of that, right? So you can see examples of it once you've worked out what it is, as it were. You don't get to it by going through examples and then up the chain. So for example, just to put some flesh around this, it might be easier to grasp it if I, I give a couple of examples. For example, in the Greek view of natural science, the planets must travel in circular orbits. You don't go and look and see, as it were, if you would have been capable of doing it. The planets must travel in circular orbits, why? because they are heavenly immortal bodies and the circle is the perfect figure. You see the point? So you know already this must be true. And then you look for illustrations that it is in fact, that demonstrate somehow the truth of it. Uh, so heavenly physics, you know already how heavenly physics works. If you then turn your attention to the earth, and this is uh, Edwin's famous example, which is Aristotle's, one of Aristotle's examples, and you ask yourself, what is the purpose of male testicles, as, as one does from time to time? Uh, well, you might think the way to find that out is to observe, as it were, and to move through empirical inquiry. But Aristotle's move was actually to ask the question, the question of analogy, what do they look like elsewhere in creation, right? And uh, his rather memorable answer is that they resemble the weights hanging down from looms, and the purpose of those weights, those loom weights, was to keep everything in perfect tension so that your weaving didn't get messed up. And he said, therefore, the purpose of male testicles must be something similar to that. And really, they're designed to keep the male body in perfect tension and functioning properly, right? Now, we wouldn't approach the matter in that way, but, but that's how Aristotle uh, did. And the very last thing a Greek philosopher would think of doing was to pursue empirical inquiry in order to discover what these biological entities are for, right? That's just not the way uh, they would have done it. So, in Athens, there's a cosmos. It possesses the character that I have just described. But in Jerusalem, by contrast, there is not a cosmos although I'll call it that from time to time just because of carelessness, uh, but really there's a creation which is a different thing from a cosmos. Uh, in biblical thinking in Jerusalem, the world is a creation. It's created by God who is a person. It has a beginning, a developing middle, and an end. It's a dynamic moving entity. It is not eternal, it is not static, it is not unchanging. Creation is on a journey somewhere, it is unfolding, and we grasp it through our senses. 
in biblical thinking. I mean, you may have been struck by this, and I hope you'll be struck by it now if you weren't before. The number of times it is made clear in Scripture that, in fact, you do discover things by way of the senses, by touching and seeing and, and being invited into that into that inquiry, as it were. Come and see, test this out, look and see. Uh, think of all those gospel stories about the importance of people having seen and touched and been there, and so on. Uh, uh, so sense experience is fundamentally reliable in Jerusalem, whereas in Athens it's fundamentally unreliable. And notions of testing of learning by way of seeing and touching and observing and so on, all of that is very much in the frame. And uh, Edwin pointed out, and I'm going to develop this point, that this is really why Jerusalem does lead in the end to modern science in the 17th century, from which time onwards, Edwin pointed out, we do not recognize anything as knowledge that is not empirically and historically based. He means by we culturally, we, that's our general approach, as it were, to the point of skepticism about anything that cannot be verified in that way. So it's an utter, an utter shift of perspective and, and method and way of being, and ultimately, therefore, because of what I said last night, it leads to a different way of, of, of approaching life, politics, ethics, and everything else as well. So it's not just modern science, but... Uh, so that's, that's so far to this point, that's all Edwin judged, by the way, that's not me. I just, I just embellished a bit and gave some examples. What I want to do now is to spend the first part of this first talk briefly underlining the distinctiveness of Jerusalem. So I'm going to be taking us a bit deeper on that, not just in respect of Athens, but, but more broadly, as I said last evening I would be doing. Um, and then the second part of this morning's first talk, I want to address the obvious question arising from what I've just said, and that is, if this was already Jerusalem's view, why is it that modern science didn't arise till the 17th century? I mean, that's a pretty good question, right? Um, why is it that everything took so long, as it were? I said last evening that if you wanted to be provocative, you could say that Moses invented modernity, but modernity didn't happen until the 17th century, so why? What's about the meantime? So, those are the two parts of this morning's first talk. Let's get on with the first one then. Uh, the distinctiveness of the Jerusalem view. So, let's begin with this question about the eternality, the eternalness or not of creation. This is one of the most obvious distinctives of the Jerusalem view, and the story begins by addressing it, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right there, that's a radically countercultural statement with respect to the ancient Near East and with respect to Athens. In the beginning, God created all the reality that makes up the cosmos, not only the earth, but also the heavens. This belief that the world is not eternal, but has a beginning, then becomes one of the fundamental beliefs for each of the three major religions that take biblical literature as being really important, by which I mean Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So these are, all these religions have their roots in the same mosaic tradition in various ways. And for all of those, unsurprisingly, the idea of creation having a beginning, being a creation, is really crucially important. And of course, it's one of these things that appears to be self-evident to us. Those of us who have grown up in Western culture, uh, this is almost without realizing it, why it would be, this is our default starting point. Yes, of course, we all know about the Big Bang, and it, you know, we have a beginning, of course we do. But of course, it's not self-evident to many other people around the world now, and it has not been self-evident to many people throughout history, and it's very easy to illustrate that briefly by mentioning Hinduism, for example, in which what is ultimately real is eternal and all-embracing. Uh, 
It's the great principle of Brahman, the unchanging ground of being, the impersonal unchanging ground of being, incidentally, that's rather important. Everything in the cosmos, in this worldview, in that worldview, evolving from this original unified entity by a mechanistic process, so the one becomes the many. That's language they'll be using quite a bit as we go through. So in the end, in Hinduism, it is an illusion that we creatures living in the cosmos are many. Actually, we're all just aspects of the one, and salvation, if you like, exists or consists in recognizing the truth of the matter, that even our personhood is an illusion at the end of the day. It's not real in that sense. Um, We have to overcome these illusions to escape the wheel of existence. Uh, So it's not just Aristotle in the West who thought the cosmos was eternal. It's also an Eastern. It's a fundamentally Eastern idea, in fact. So that's point number one. Number two, just to focus in on the created by a person bit of the equation. So the world has a beginning, but crucially, this beginning is initiated in the Bible in personal terms. So this notion of a personal creator, once again embraced by Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, but once again very different from what we find elsewhere, historically and at the present time. So if you think about the West, you can think of somebody like Plato, who in the Republic posits the form of the good, which is the final cause of everything that we do. So ultimate reality is the form of the good, the highest idea of the good, the beautiful, and the true, but it is impersonal, right? So ultimate reality is impersonal. In Buddhism, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, teaches his followers that the ultimate that they should seek is not a god, but simply truth, dharma. And again, that's not a person. It's a principle, right? It's It's a principle that penetrates everywhere, is operative in everything, and in, in these various other ways of looking at the world, the, the notion that ultimate reality is personal is absolutely not what's at the core of the whole thing. And of course, this leads on then to an obvious problem, because if ultimate reality is impersonal and we are personal, we have a problem, right? So these are not going to be, as it were, life-affirming philosophies in, in that sense, Right? because our personhood becomes a problem we have to overcome, actually, in these various ways of of thinking. Thirdly, in Jerusalem, in, in Scripture, the cosmos, creation, possesses order. Uh, it possesses order because a personal creator orders it. And the order is what allows life to flourish. Planets do not need to possess this kind of order, and in fact, no other planet in our solar system possesses this kind of order. It's quite possible that no other planet anywhere in the universe possesses this kind of order. We certainly don't know of any. The only one we know possesses this kind of order is our own, and this is the only place in the universe where life is known to exist. And Genesis understands this order to derive from the personal creator, pictures it as taking place in six days, wherein the problem of formlessness is solved by giving the world form, and the problem of emptiness is solved by filling all the spheres of existence with creatures, and you get this wonderful picture of a world that is good. That's the recurring thing that's said about it in Genesis 1. God saw that it was good, and in the end, he saw that it was very good, right? So, a very affirmative idea of the goodness of the material, physical, created order. None of this, says Genesis, 
None of this arises by chance. None of it arises through impersonal forces, uh, as would be true of many other religious traditions. Uh, The cosmos is not to be thought of, for example, in terms of randomly colliding atoms, which was the Epicurean idea of the cosmos, a very pre-modern, modern idea, right? It's all just a matter of fortuitous atom collision. Well, says Genesis, uh, no, not at all. This is all the product of a mind. It's all the product of a will, of a person. And that's a radical idea. We, do, we don't see it as radical very often in the West because we've lived with this so long, we're accustomed to these ideas. But in the whole context, as you step back, you see it's a very unusual way of thinking about the world. Okay, next heading, not on the screen. The cosmos is not divine in Jerusalem. Um, The creation is not only ordered by God in biblical thinking, it is also separate from God. This is a rather important point. I, I don't mean by this that God is not present in creation and cannot be encountered in creation. Of course, uh, the Bible does suggest that that is true. What I mean is that in biblical thinking, God and creation are not the same thing. They're separate beings, if I can put it that way. Creation is not part of God. God is not creation as it would be in pantheism, for example. So creation is not identified with God in any way. One of the ways that Genesis 1 communicates that is by talking about God speaking creation into being, which is a metaphor, if you think about it, of distance, right? God speaks and over here creation happens. It's a way of of emphasizing transcendence, of emphasizing difference and separateness. Now, that's a very different way of thinking about the world to many other religions and philosophies. Uh, In much of the religious philosophy of the world, The world emerges from the one and becomes the many. Um, If you think about cell division, you would get the basic idea here, right? So you begin with the one, it becomes the two and the four and so on. And that's really the the governing metaphor for how creation comes into, how the cosmos comes into being in much Eastern philosophy and in ancient Near Eastern philosophy too. And this is why, of course, the gods are bound up with natural forces and it's all inside the system in the ancient Near East, right? So you don't get notions of God creating in the ancient world. The gods themselves are part of the evolving process and the gods are really high-level bureaucrats in this way of thinking. They're not creators of something else. They're simply administrators of a system they themselves are already bound up in. So the one becomes the many, and there's utter continuity between the gods and creation. But in Genesis, of course, there is no such continuity. In biblical thinking, the creator has no point of origin in the world. The world does have a point of origin but it doesn't originate from within God, if I can put it that way. God creates. And so in biblical thinking, the cosmic phenomena are not divine. I mentioned this last night, but just to underline it, if you read Genesis 1, you will discover that apart from the creation of human beings, the thing that gets most attention are the sun and the moon. Have you ever noticed that? The most words are used next to the creation of human beings of the sun and the moon and what they really are, namely lights in the sky, not gods. And it's obvious if you're writing a cosmology in that ancient context, you have to deal immediately with the sun and the moon because they're the two most important gods in the ancient Near Eastern pantheons, right? So you reposition them as it were and they become simply uh, lights. Likewise, uh, storms in biblical thinking are simply storms. They're not manifestations of the storm god. 
Um, one of the illustrations of that would be the famous Elijah story, do you remember, where he's in the cave, he's rather depressed, he's at a bad time, and he hears the storm blowing outside, do you remember, and we're told very explicitly God was not in the fire, he was not in the earthquake, etc., etc. And this is a, a very deliberate way of, of saying this is not like that other religious religious stuff you know about, right? We're not talking about a storm god showing up here in all of these natural phenomena. So, uh, the cosmos is not divine, very distinctive and unique. But, on the other hand, in biblical thinking, the cosmos is sacred. So, the non-divinity of stuff doesn't mean that we are to have a casual, pragmatic idea of creation, as if creation were simply a series of objects put there so that we can manipulate them for our own purposes. So there's no idea that just because we don't have divinity in the cosmos, we ought not to have respect for the cosmos. In fact, uh, many of you will know because of other speakers who have spoken at Gospel Conversations, that the leading metaphor for creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is the temple. Creation is a temple made by God to reflect the truth of the cosmos, as it were. So creation itself reflects the truth about God. The heavens declare the glory of God and so on. We ourselves are described as images, image bearers placed in creation in order to Uh, look after it, which is directly taking that notion of the temple with the images in it that we saw last evening. And so creation in uh, Genesis and elsewhere is a temple cosmos. It is sacred space. It is where God chooses to dwell with us. It's not divine, but it's really important. It's really important that we treat it correctly. And all of this adds up finally to the notion that the cosmos creation is good. Uh, God is transcendent over it, but it itself is good. It is sacred. And therefore, in Scripture, the created world is never regarded as a problem to be overcome. It is good. There are problems that arise within it, for sure, and we'll come back to those later this morning. So there are problems in the world of a local kind that have to be overcome, but creation itself is not a problem to be overcome. And that view stands in very stark contrast to much Eastern thought and much ancient Near Eastern thought. It stands against the idea that physical reality, for one reason or another, is a problem. Um, So if you think again about the religious philosophy of the East, and you think about Buddhism, for example, in Buddhism, the world is itself an obstacle that we must overcome to attain a greater good that we ought to be striving for, right? So we overcome the world on the way to something better. Reality, ultimate reality, lies elsewhere. And uh, we have to overcome various illusions about it in order to attain that escape from it. Uh, Biblical faith has often been associated likewise with a kind of escapist view um, on, on these matters. But it seems to me to be quite a mistake, no matter what Christians may have believed here and there, or even large numbers of them historically, I don't believe for a moment that biblical texts encourage us to a negative or suspicious attitude toward the material world. The world as created by God in its physicality is good. It is not a mistake, uh, as it is in, in much Greek philosophy, where A lower God gets away with creating it without the higher God knowing in some versions of that story. The world is not a mistake or a problem in the sense of being a trap where we are stuck, a prison of the soul, as for Plato, 
where we have to, we don't really belong here and we need to get back to the real world that somewhere exists elsewhere. It does not lack something, this world, in biblical terms. It does not lack something because we experience it in personal terms. Our senses are not problematic, etc., etc., etc. In biblical faith, the world is a wonderful place created so as to be exactly the right place for us to live at the present time, a good and a beautiful place for the flourishing of creatures. And in biblical faith, the many do not obscure the one. In Eastern philosophy, the many obscure the one, and you have to strip them away to get at the one. But when Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, you see the difference there? They don't obscure it, they proclaim it. They, they reveal it. They're directly related to it. Um, and so in biblical faith, although our destiny is more than this, ultimately, in the first instance, it's not less than living in this good physical world, right? And this helps to explain, of course, ultimately, why the doctrine of the resurrection of the body becomes such a core Christian doctrine, a doctrine that was incomprehensible to the Greeks and which the book of Acts tells us caused much mirth when proclaimed to the Greeks because a Greek would say, why on earth would you want a body in the afterlife for gosh sakes? And the Christians said, well, no, actually, this physicality thing is not a temporary thing or an accident. Physicality lies right at the heart of the whole enterprise. And so there's a resurrection of the body. And this was a point of complete incomprehension to the Greeks. You couldn't remain a Greek, really, in that sense and become a Christian. And this became a huge problem for those Christians educated in the Greek curriculum as we go through the Christian centuries because the level of commitment they had to notions of the resurrection of the body was, shall we say, mixed to the extent that they were really prepared to leave behind ideas that weren't really consistent with this idea. We'll get back to that in a second. So uh, all of that to say then, that we have in Jerusalem a world-affirming perspective. I think it's extraordinarily important for us to grasp this, given that uh, Christian faith itself has not always grasped this point sufficiently clearly and sufficiently robustly. So, although I've used the word cosmos loosely in what I've just been saying, The upshot of all of this is that in Jerusalem, we do not live in a cosmos at all. We live in and are part of a creation. It's not eternal. It's not static. It's not unchanging. It's on a journey to a destination. It is unfolding in that direction. It is fundamentally good and beautiful, although we'll get to other aspects, obviously, of it later on this morning. It is the very place for us to live, and our senses and so on uh, give us reliable access to it, although not complete in all senses access, but, but certainly reliable, adequate access. And in none of the cultures dominated by non-Jerusalem alternatives, in none of the cultures, not just Athens, uh, in none of those other cultures did modern science arise for reasons that must now be obvious. It's not an accident. It's not an accident of history <clears throat> that modern science eventually arose in a world dominated by these Jerusalem ideas and nowhere else. Um, in fact, modern science, as it turned out, arose largely out of a Protestant Christian culture specifically for reasons which we'll now get on to explore. So now we're into the the second briefer part of the talk, which is, if what I've just said is a true description of reality, a true description of Jerusalem's worldview vis-a-vis all sorts of other worldviews through time, why is it then that modern science actually took such a long time to arise? And I think the right answer to this question is the problem of the Athens-Jerusalem synthesis. Another shorthand for you. The Athens-Jerusalem synthesis. What I mean by that is 
that in the early centuries in which the church was founded and was finding its way, its main dialogue partner inevitably was Greek philosophy and culture, right? It's obvious. The church is born into Greco-Roman reality. And, uh, oh, there we go. Excuse me. This will take some time. Just ignore it if you can. Uh, we'll get, I won't even try and fix this probably till the break, actually. It'll just be too distracting. So just let that run. Uh, inevitably, so you have your Christian faith. You have those early disciples. They're enthusiastically sharing the gospel with their contemporaries. Who are these contemporaries? Well, they're largely Hellenized people. Uh, many of the Jews are deeply Hellenized, and the rest of the world is Greek, from India all the way to Greece. It's Greek by this point. Greek language, Greek culture dominates the entire ancient world. So, of course, if you're talking to your neighbors, you're needing to take account of where they're coming from and build bridges and find points of contact. Perfectly natural, nothing wrong with that. The problem is, of course, that if you build bridges, you can expect things to try and come back the other way. A bridge is a two-way thing. And so the problem that begins to arise is, can the early church really hold on to its fundamental identity clearly, or is it going to be compromised in this dialogue, in this uh, conversation? Is it possible that the purity and the clarity of the gospel message gets diminished, gets to some extent uh, corrupted? And I think one of the main problems actually at the heart of the whole thing is that if you're going to put Jerusalem and Athens together, rather than having one critiquing as well as somewhat affirming the other, if you're going to put them together, how are you going to do that? How are you going to bring biblical faith largely based at the moment of the originating moment of the church on the Old Testament, of course, right? Those are the scriptures that the church inherits from Jesus and, and, and is using as the other, the apostolic writings are, are only getting going at the moment. <clears throat> How do you bring these things together? Well, the Greeks already had a way of absorbing into their culture awkward traditional authoritative texts. They already knew how to do this, and their way of doing it was to read all of that ancient literature allegorically. So that's how you solve the problem. Um, the background here, briefly, is Homer. Uh, Homer, hugely important in Greek culture. Simon Goldhill puts it this way in regard to Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. He says this, his, Homer's, was the text first learnt and most studied at all levels of Greek education, and any educated Athenian could be expected to have a knowledge of it. Homer was also a prime source of authority for knowledge, behavior, and ethics. The Homeric texts were essential not only to the actual process of teaching and to the festival institutions of Athens, but also to the makeup of Athenian social attitudes and understanding, end quote. You get the point. Homer is as close to Scripture as the Greeks got. Right? So you have the Greeks with their Scripture. To be a Greek is to be Homeric. Right? The identity of what it means to be a Greek person is to be that kind of person. Homer is hugely important. The problem is, when you begin to hit the 6th and 5th centuries and the rise of the pre-Socratic philosophers and then Plato and all those guys, you have a problem. Because people begin to raise questions about whether Homer's gods are really quite respectable people after all, whether they're admirable, whether you should imitate them. Are these texts actually helpful for the building of a just and a good society? So Homer comes into question. To such an extent that Plato, in his Republic, proposes that in the ideal Republic, you would simply not allow people to read Homer. That was his solution, rather impractical solution, but 
Plato, in some ways, was a rather impractical fellow. Um, So that wasn't actually what happened. What happened was people began to say, well, let's just read Homer in a different way. Reading Homer literally causes a problem. So let us suppose that actually what Homer is about is something else entirely. He's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking allegorically. Maybe when he talks about the gods fighting with each other, for example, he's talking about internal struggles of the soul with itself, right? This is the kind of move that gets made. So allegory becomes the favored way of handling an authoritative traditional text that has now become somewhat embarrassing. That's a really important idea because you can immediately see how Greeks faced with the Christian gospel and faced with the Old Testament in particular, which was utterly alien to them in so many, many ways, even as they received some of that truth, their instinct was going to be to solve the problem by reading allegorically, right? And if you read allegorically, you can accommodate the challenging material to the culture. It stops challenging the culture, actually. That's the whole point of it, actually, is to stop it challenging the culture. So you see this move with regard to Scripture already among Hellenized Jews in the late centuries B.C. and the first century A.D., people like Philo of Alexandria... Uh, He is faced with this very problem. How do I explain my Jewish scriptures to my sophisticated Greek friends? I know we'll read it allegorically. And we'll try to show that actually Moses was a Greek philosopher before you guys got going. That was the, the, the way of, as it were, selling and explaining this unusual, strange, Jewish way of living in a largely Hellenized culture. So Philo of Alexandria was already doing this. And what happened in the subsequent centuries, in Alexandria in particular, was that people like Clement and Origen picked up that idea, developed it big time, and hugely influenced the rest of the early Christian tradition in doing so. And this persisted all the way through the Middle Ages, and you can immediately see what the outcome of that is going to be. The outcome is going to be that the radical nature of this Christian message, this biblical Jerusalem message, the radical edge of it is going to be heavily blunted. And this is why, even though there is a church in in the Middle Ages that now has enormous reach culturally, that Aristotle is actually the authority when it comes to natural science, not scripture. That's just the reality of the thing. If you wanted to know about how to approach the natural world, you went to Aristotle, you didn't go to Genesis. Or you went to Genesis, but by way of Aristotle. That would be a bit more accurate. Uh, So, you get people like Roger Bacon in the 13th century, a Franciscan English monk, who is already commenting on the negative effects of this, complaining to the Pope about the quality of Christian education, about the ignorance that people have of, uh, 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 of the natural world. He's an, an early empirical scientist, but Roger Bacon in his own time is a very unusual person. He's asking questions that others are not asking because in a world dominated by Plato, and then by Aristotle, all sorts of questions simply are not going to arise. Or if they arise, they will immediately be pulled back into the traditional way of handling these problems. And so you will never learn anything new, and the whole purpose actually is not to learn anything new. You may remember, some of you will know the famous stories that Galileo tells of his attempts later on to get some of his contemporaries to look through a telescope to see what he had seen, and the response he all too often got from very sophisticated people, not not idiots, you know, really clever people, the response was, I don't need to look through your telescope, I already know what's there, 
and the evidence of my eyes is sense evidence and doesn't count. It's not dumb. It's, it's not smart either in a way, but you see what I mean? Within the confines of that worldview, there's nothing irrational about that actually. And it shows you the extent to which the Greek approach to the natural sciences was the dominant approach right through to the Reformation, in fact, the Renaissance and the Reformation. Um, and we could get into Plato and all of this and explain exactly why and how this worked out, but uh, I'm very happy to answer questions on that as we go. But the short version of the story is this, that it's only as the authority of Aristotle begins to get questioned in the Renaissance and in the Reformation, it's really only in the face of this back to the Bible let's get rid of tradition, let's go back and actually read what Scripture has to say. It's only as that kind of Renaissance Reformation axis gets going and gets traction in society that you can possibly get a different approach to the natural world arising. And uh, one of the things, if you read the Reformers uh, at all, you will not be reading them too long before you'll come across a sarcastic, cynical, critical comment about Aristotle. Luther hated Aristotle with a passion, for example. Uh, he, he just thought that Aristotle was a big part of the problem with everything, actually, that was wrong with the church of his day. That was Luther's uh, perspective. Um, so Michael Foster, in discussing this very problem that, that we're now just looking at, uh, he says this, the medieval philosopher had, of course, believed the Christian doctrine that nature is created, but the belief had been efficacious only in his theology. In his science of nature, he had continued to seek for final causes, to define essences, and to deduce properties. In a word, he had continued to employ the methods of Aristotelian science, entirely oblivious of the fact that Aristotle's science was based upon the presupposition that nature was not created. You see? It was just a complete... We talked about confusion last night, right? About our difficulty of being consistent. So this is a great example. Here you have a philosophy that's premised on a, a view of the world that's not the one you say you believe, but you're dichotomous. In your theology, you've got a hold of this, but in your science, you're still behaving in this other way. And Michael Foster says that's why it took such a long time, actually, for these things to, to come out. Uh, so this is what he, he says. The modern investigators of nature were the first to take seriously in their science the Christian doctrine that nature is created. And the main difference is between the methods of the ancients and the methods of modern natural science may be reduced to this that these are, the modern ones, and these are not, the older ones, methods proper to the investigation of nature. You see the, the crucial shift there. So there's no question that, that Luther and, and all those guys played an enormous part in all of this. Uh, here, here's just one example of uh, Luther. Very direct, of course, he's a very blunt guy. Nothing can be learned from Aristotle's writings, either of the things of nature or of the things of the spirit. Didn't mess about Luther. And this became very, uh, very important in later Protestant thinking. In the next generation, the 17th century, you have Thomas Culpepper, uh, a rather important early uh, scientist on, on the side of medicine and so on, uh, talking about the dethronement, the, the much-to-be-desired dethronement of Aristotle as, quote, the Pope in philosophy along with the other Pope. Religious Reformation, but it's actually more than the Religious Reformation. It's a philosophical uh, Reformation as well. And then, of course, the rise of modern science uh, to a position of dominance was very much tied up with the Reformation because, by and large, it was only in Reformation countries that science was promoted and endorsed and permitted, in fact. So, of course, there's always political dimensions to this. You can have a bright idea, but if you're censored and imprisoned, you're not going to get 
too far. Um, so as Ryer Hukyas uh, puts it, he says this, in an age in which religious sanction was necessary for something to become socially acceptable, it made a great difference whether science was distrusted, merely tolerated, or positively encouraged by the prevalent religion. So it wasn't just the originating moments that were important within the Reformation context. It was the very ability of people to pursue scientific inquiry, in fact, in the 17th century. So, all of this to say that although uh, Athens is lauded as the real originating point of much that's important about Western culture, I think that is all vastly overstated and largely untrue myself. Uh, In fact, in this instance, and I would say in all the other important ones we're going to be talking about, it is the Jerusalem perspective that's crucial for understanding the modern world. It's not the Athens perspective. The question that soon faced thoughtful Christian people, of course, was how far to integrate all the things now being discovered by scientists back into the Protestant faith that had birthed it. Because the problem was, of course, they had let loose something that nobody really knew where it was going to go. Right? That's the problem with empirical inquiry, if it's a problem. You have no way of knowing where it's going to go. And so the Protestant perspective on Christian faith undoubtedly generates all of this. But within a generation, people are saying, well, I'm not sure I like the consequences of this, actually, because it's asking questions back to me about my current construal of what Scripture teaches. So what was to be done now with all of the data being unearthed, some of which caused a problem to 16th century perspectives on Christian faith? How far could that be allowed to go? That's another story. We're not telling that story here. In fact, we're still in the middle of that story, you may have noticed, even to this day. What's important at the moment, with this we'll finish and have our coffee break, what's important is only this at the moment, that Jerusalem's view of the cosmos, very different from its ancient counterparts, remains different from its modern counterparts, and did have the impact it had when it had And not earlier, because earlier it was shackled to and rather undermined by an alien worldview. And uh, this, I think, is is just an historical uh, reality. That is why, even though everything I'm talking about in Scripture, I think, is, is visibly there, and it's visibly there a long time ago, it's only as that is allowed to seep out into the general intellectual culture that you actually get the kind of changes to culture that you might think would be expected if that were the perspective. Okay? So we'll stop there, and we'll take our break, and we'll reconvene in about 10 minutes. I've gone five minutes over. I apologize, but uh, I was distracted for part of the time. So. Okay, so coffee break.